Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is a difficult challenge and an unpopular topic. The church at Asia Minor at Pergamum was remembered by Jesus for their faithfulness, even in the face of persecution. But unfortunately, they had succumbed to an internal kind of pollution, an infection of ungodly actions and behaviors that stemmed from a culture that was influenced by idolatry and sexual immorality. As we examine today how to live a holy life in a world that's run by the evil one, we will find that Satan's defeat is a matter of our repentance and dependence on God. Thanks for joining us as we continue to look at the seven churches of the apocalypse. We've got uh, on the island where we served in the Caribbean this place where the waves come and they hit these huge cliffs. And if you, there's a place you can pull off on the side of the road and, and, and watch these waves. And as you look out on the Atlantic, you see how the, the waters are just tumultuous and how the wind just moves those waves wherever it blows. Uh, there, there's no inkling or inclination of a stability out there on the water. And, and many times you can even see a boat and a poor little fisherman just up and down and rocked from side to side. Um, this uh, past week when I pick up my son from school, I get there early and I sit there with my, um, with my window down and not intending to, but overhearing the words of the young people who are coming out of school and in just... Oh, only can be described in my heart a sadness to hear the type of language that young people use. I ran, I ran out of fingers to count the number of profanity words in, within 60 seconds and how the predominant topic of conversation revolving around the vanity of sex, how it's meaningless and uh, doesn't, I think, has been at fault in our culture, something propagated and misunderstood by the world, but that to be carried now by young people. Uh, It's almost like they're a boat on the waves of the culture that's knocking them from side to side, being blown about, controlled by every whim of cultural wind that blows their way. Um, I encounter this and then have to pick up my kid from school thinking, that's where I just put him for eight hours. He, he gets to navigate that now. Um, I think that you've heard a burden that God's put on me for this year, that our church as a whole takes an intentional look to say, how can we help this next generation that's growing up for the majority of their time being influenced by a world that wants nothing to do with God? nor his rule, nor obedience to him. Uh, I would imagine to make the scales even, we ought to pair the time with church. So I'm here to tell you church is going to last eight hours today. I hope you're all prepared. Can, can you imagine? I mean, th- this is what we have. We have um, a 40-hour, essentially a work week of influence. And I'm sure it's not constantly. that Right there in classes and they're learning, but... Boy, we need to be intentional, don't we, church? We need to, as a whole, it can't be just all the Sunday school teachers will take care of it, the pastor will take care of it. It has to be the entire body to give a focus to this because your kids, your children, they live in pollution. It's a pollution of their spirit and their soul without the desire and the effort from the church of God, the people of God to say, no, let, let, let us help you make sense of the world that you face every day. Let us help you make sense of what it means to follow after the king of kings. For he is going to come and judge. And we want to make sure that you can stand 
against the influences and stand on that day of judgment. It's going to involve you. Every one of you. It's going to involve all of us. It is a kind of pollution, a kind of corruption that's all too pervasive in our world today. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, Don't, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And as we see, not only our young people, and that for me is just on the cusp of my heart because I get to feel it when I pick them up from school. You live there too. Do you know that? You live there. Surrounding you by virtue of that which comes through the internet, by that which comes through the cable TV box, by that which you find on your smartphone, by that which is involved in the discussions around the water cooler. You're surrounded by the pollution of a world that doesn't love God. It's bad company. You know what bad company does? It corrupts good character. Boy, we got to be careful. We have to pay attention. We need to be intentional, church. And we got to deal with it. As I think of an illustration for this, it's not something that's happening on the outside. It's actually happening from within. What I mean by that is that there isn't as much as we live in a world today where we have to be aware of domestic terror attacks, right? And school shootings in the crazy world we live in. The corruption that I'm talking about is actually already there. It's already on the inside. To, to me, the best illustration of this might be cancer. Where, where's cancer? On the outside or on the... It's on the inside. And, and if you were to go to the doctor and the doctor does a scan and he says, I've, I've got rough news. I'm very sorry to report to you, but you've got cancer. We decided we're just going to leave it there not deal with it at all. Does that make any sense? What, what do you do with it? If you find something that doesn't belong, it's a, if it's a foreign pollutant that doesn't belong, what do you do? You deal with it. Can you say that with me? Ready? You deal with it. Now, anybody who has walked that long journey of dealing with cancer knows that is a tough battle. Some of you know that very dearly, that this is a fight that you need to all right, you need to arm yourself for. You need to get ready. You need to really put on some armor. Can you tell what I'm preaching on yet, church? You need to prepare yourself for a battle to face that and deal with that which doesn't belong. Not a threat from the outside in this case, but a threat that shows up right inside, a corruption on the inside. I told you, I think it was last week or the week before, we took our daughter to the hospital because we thought she had this terrible infection. Do you remember that? What, 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 do you, what happens to an infection if it goes untreated? It'll do what? It's just going to keep spreading. It's just going to keep spreading. It's this, it's this infection that we have to look at. It's this pollution that we have to pay attention to. And the collective understanding and agreement from God's church has to say, we must deal with it. And this is a tough message. This is a hard one for me to deliver. I've entitled it, Purity in Pollution and God's Provision. I think it's a challenging message because it's not one that comes and says, oh, well, you just come to church and and just have a great time and and then I'll mind my own business and you mind your own business and we'll all be happy. We'll all be happy. That, I think, is a message that you find a lot of people would like to hear and maybe some people would like to hear that today. That is not the message I'm going to give. And the reason why this is challenging is going to be up to you. I'll give you an option, okay? As we look at Revelation chapter 2, you can, you can hear it and you can say, all right, fine. I got more things to worry about. The game starts at whatever time and I'm focused on 
what I'm going to do. Or you can say, all right, I believe this is God's word and I'm going to choose to deal with it now. But I promise you, if you decide to go that route, you need to make sure that you're prepared. You need to make sure that you're geared up and that you put your armor on. And so you, you, you have two options, an option of apathy that says, that's fine, I'm, uh, I'm out of here. Or an option that says, all right, it's time for me to step up and deal with it. That's what I'm laying before you today. So it's up to you how you're going to take this. It's going to be challenging if you say you want to make a change. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. We're going to read through the letter that Jesus gives to the church at Pergamum. Um, and then uh, as after we read through it, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the city. We're going to make some observations and, and uh, try to understand what's being said here. Work through some conclusions and then take it, take it from here. You, you guys know the routine. So here we go. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Okay, there's our letter. We just snuck a peek at the email that Jesus sends to Pergamum. Um, the, the term here at the beginning, again, as we looked at angel, is not referring to any cosmic form of guardian angel rather it it deals more specifically with the concept of a messenger or an, an emissary uh, the representative spirit of the whole church he's writing to the whole church at pergamum this this applies to everybody who is there uh, pergamum is just a little further north if you can remember where we began our journey in this uh, study of the seven churches of the apocalypse the first was in ephesus a little bit further south there on the aegean sea and if you move a little bit north 40 miles north you get to smyrna that's where we were last week and now if you kept trekking if you got on the donkey and rode it a little bit further as long as you didn't you know try to talk to you <laughs> Uh, you'd make it all the way to pergamum about 60 miles north pergamum is the capital city um, it is, in fact, the name uh, itself means the citadel. And so this is what it's known for. You, you can imagine at any capital city, this is where you've got uh, kind of the, the meeting places of culture. Uh, this is where the politicians will argue. And, and this is the place 
where those would, who seek to be educated would invest their time and talents and the economy would thrive off of that being an identifiable feature of the city. Um, Pergamum also boasted, and this it was renowned for, um, over 200,000 volumes in its library. So having this uh, incredible library makes for them an educational and a cultural center for the whole region. Uh, You can think today with uh, there being certain places in our world today that really set the tone for the cultural or educational influences in our world. If I were to ask you, pick which U.S. city do you think is most influential in setting cultural tones, I bet you could pick one on the East Coast and I bet you could pick one on the West Coast. Um, just raise your hand if I pick the one that you pick on the east. New York City, anybody with me on New York? All right. How about L.A., Las Vegas on, on the west? Yeah. So you got Hollywood, and then you have the uh, commercial center. And lo and behold, in our world today, they set the tone for culture. That's Pergamon. That's the place that we're dealing with today. However, probably the most identifying feature for difficulty for the Christian church in Pergamum were the four temples that were given to false Deities. You had uh, the largest uh, given to the temple of Zeus, whom they called Savior. Uh, then you had one to Althena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. Uh, Asclepius is one that uh, you are familiar with and probably don't even know it. Uh, the symbol here uh, and, and for the temple of Asclepius was one of healing. If you wanted to find healing, you would go to this temple and you would lay down on the floor and there in the middle of the temple arena at night uh, would be set loose snakes. They, they had snakes crawling all throughout and the, the idea was if you happen to have a, one of the serpents brush across you, the, that would be the touch of the God upon you that would help lead you to whatever healing and they would invite you to find uh, visions and dreams and try to interpret those dreams. Well, this concept of a, of a, of a snake is one that within our profession of health has woven into a symbol that you're probably familiar with. Uh, the rod of Asclepius uh, if you can reckon, I just picked three random ones off Wikipedia here. Um, everybody with me on this? You, you've seen that before? Yeah, that's the temple that was in Pergamum. And it was, I believe, because of that and because of the way in which uh, the temple to Zeus as the Savior was lauded and people would come to sacrifice, that when Jesus writes to the church, Look what he says in verse 13. I know where you live. Where what? Where Satan has his throne. Now, we read that. In fact, you can even catch a little bit further, right? In verse end of verse 13. Uh, death in, or where Antipas was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We, we read that and we, I think we miss the gravity of what that means. Uh, let, Let me just back up just a moment and help you know that the book of Revelation that we're reading is it's apocalyptic type of genre. It's a kind of writing that means it's uncovering things that have been hidden. And in order to do that, so much of the writing is given to symbolism and imagery. And the meaning is that which has to be very carefully parsed out, that we do not make a mistake of having to say something that it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there is a throne in Pergamum where Satan sits. Well, isn't that what the Bible just said? This is the part that ought to shock you, is that that's actually the ruling and the throne and the empowerment of anything opposed to the rule of God. 
It's a symbolic picture of all of those who would take anything, hear me now, take anything and put it higher than God. If you're in a place where there is anything that people put higher than God, guess whose throne is right there? That's where Satan's throne is. You know what? I personally would love it if this were literal. If it was literally just a chair that Satan would sit on. Why? Because what what could we go do? (laughs) We could go burn it down. We We could go get the chair and move it. And now Satan's throne isn't there anymore. But here is the far worse reality of this. Satan's throne is a picture of the rule above God. Whoever wants to have a power, an allegiance. There's a name for this, by the way. It's called idolatry. That's what that's called. Where you put anything else above God. And where you find that in your world is where you find Satan's rule. It's where you find Satan's throne. Any of that in your world? You see that from day to day, week to week? You see that anywhere? Um, what What... If you were to ask the average American, what would they say in answer to the question, what is Sunday as a day of the week known for? Football. Say it loud, Glenn. Football. Anyone agree with them? Sunday. Dun, 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 dun. Now, I love football. Does it come before God? For a lot of people... It already has, and they don't recognize it. And that's just one. How many more examples could we give? And I, again, I'm not trying to harp down on anyone here. I want to make sure we're understanding the situation of this city is not very far off from a situation where we live. I saw it picking my son up from school. We live in pollution. We live in a corruption. That's where Satan lives because we've taken the loves of man and we've elevated it higher than a love for God. It's where Satan's throne is found. Uh, Antipas here. Uh, I'm going to clear up a couple other things. Antipas, we actually don't have a lot of history or background. Um, It's thought, and it's a bit of a church tradition here, that he may have been one of the very first pastors of the church there in Pergamum. But regardless of the case, Antipas here was condemned to death by the state. He was killed as a martyr, as a Christian witness. In fact, that's the term here. Did you see it? Uh, Antipas, my faithful witness, which is a really awesome title to have. I'm telling you, if you were seeking after any title within Christendom, that would be one to be to, to chase after. And it's because if you turn back in your book of Revelation, just turn back to chapter 1 to, to verse 5. Actually, I'll start in verse 4. Revelation 1, verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. This title is attributed to Jesus. And here is the most, this is the best thing. This is the most amazing thing that could ever be offered to you is that somebody would say to you, boy, you look just like Jesus. However you live is exactly how I would imagine and how I've learned that Jesus lives kind of love and the purity, the ability to be bold, to put your faith in God and not chase after revenge, to hold strong and hold fast to obedience to God. Boy, you look like Jesus. You're a faithful witness. That was Antipas. So he's he's killed. He's put to death there in the city. 
I want you to know Jesus here begins with the commendation. I know where you live, and yet you have not renounced your faith. So this is, this is good. The church in Pergamum has not gone off the rails. They've held to their faith. But they actually have within them a corruption, a pollution, an infection from within. And this is where it gets tough. This is the challenging part of the message. So verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there. This would be people in the church. Not just people in Pergamum. You have people, worshipers, on Sunday morning, who are holding to the teachings of Balaam of Beor. All right, we heard a bit of the story from Glenn this morning about Balaam. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of background as well. We focused on the donkey for the children, right? But he, here's the situation. And he, even Phil helped us to see the background. The Israelites are coming into the land. For years they've been wandering. And the Amorite people are those that have just recently been destroyed by God's hand in front of the Israelites. And so they're entering into new territory. And there, on the cusp of the territorial border, is the land of Moab. And the king of Moab is a guy named Balaam. And Balak's looking, he's saying, these people are going to conquer us next. He says, I need to go and find a sorcerer. I need to go and find somebody whose word comes from God such that whoever he curses is cursed, whoever he blesses is blessed. And so he hears of Balaam. And he sends an emissary, like we heard, go get Balaam to come, and I want him to curse these people who are going to come and invade my land of Moab. And over some coercion, eventually they do get Balaam to come. Uh, Balaam here being enticed by riches, however, recognizing, I don't have time for this. You should ask me this on Wednesday at Bible study because it's an awesome story. He says, I cannot help but say what God says. In fact, you can give me an entire palace filled with silver, and I'm still not going to say whatever it is you want unless it's what God wants. So he's warning the king Balak. He's warning him saying, look, whatever you're wanting me to say, it's not going to come from me. It's not going to come from you. It's going to come from God. It's going to be true. It's going to come from God. So we could talk about that more. I really, really love uh, the defense here of what, what a prophet does. They simply speak God's words, whether you like it or not. I'm going to tell you what God says. That's what Balaam is doing. And so as he comes here and overlooks, uh, so Balak takes him. He's like, all right, look, see him over there. Those are the people. Ready? Curse them. Balaam gives his oracle. And instead of a curse, it's a blessing. And you can imagine King Balak here saying, hey, did I pay you to bless him? You need to curse him. So a second time takes him to overlook another area. And once more, Balaam pronounces what Balak hoped was a curse, but it turns out to be a blessing. And then after a third time again, instead of a curse, it ended up being a blessing. And if the story ended there, we'd be fine. The threat to the Israelites at that point, think with me now for a moment. At that point, was it coming from within the camp or was it coming from without? Everybody with me? Right? The attack was coming from without. Did it work? Did, did, did King Balak get what he wanted? No, he didn't. And that'd be fine if the story ended there, but it didn't end there. The verse that we read from Numbers 25 says that the very next thing that happens is that the Moabite women were enticed to work their way into the camp of the Israelites. I'm not trying to harp on women now. That's not what I'm trying to do. <coughs> These weak-willed men, let me pick on the men for a minute. These weak-willed men 
being led away by sensuality, end up committing sexual immorality. Do I need to explain this? Are you good? You understand? uh, End up committing sexual immorality with these Moabite women. And you know what happens? The very thing God said would happen is if you leave and chase after these people who are not your people, they will lead you to worship who? False gods and sacrifice to these false gods. And so go back now to Pergamum. Let's see what happens. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. The problem didn't come from without. The, the attack from without, the cursing from the outside didn't work. But what did? The infection on the inside. And when it wasn't dealt with, it just continued to spread through God's people. The story gets way worse, by the way, in Numbers 25. I'll let you go home and read that on your own. It gets way worse. That God says, I have to come now and deal with this infection. Because it's not happening outside anymore. It's now happening on the inside. In Pergamum, you have a situation where they are commended. You haven't left the faith. But you've got people there who are putting up with things that happened outside. And now it's happening on the inside. Continue with me a little bit further. Verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The likewise here is in connection to Balaam. Now, the Nicolaitans aren't new to us. Do you remember them from Ephesus? I call them people eaters, right? Nikao, to to devour, destroy, and Laos. So these people destroyers, that's the Nicolaitans. And they're right there in the church teaching this kind of licentiousness. Hey, you ain't hurt nobody. You fine, I'm fine. Just go have a good day. And sexual immorality is inside the church. In Ephesus, you might remember, Jesus says, this may be worth turning to, by the way. Just go back to chapter 2 at the beginning. Look again what he says in verse 6. You have this in your favor. You what? What's it say? Hate what? Does it say you hate the Nicolaitans? You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, you have that in your favor because guess what? I hate it too. I hate it because it's not the rule of God. It's the rule and the desire of men held above the rule of God. Ephesus took a stand on it. How about Pergamum? They're not taking a stand. Do you see the difference between these two? You've got the same type of teaching within the church. It's happening within the church. In Pergamum, however, look what he says in verse 16. Here's the answer. You need to repent. Therefore, otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. When I'm thinking through, how, do I, how can I depict what this looks like? I feel like for the most of you, you get it already. They haven't denied the faith, but they've embraced behavioral actions that bring disdain on the name and the rule of God. They're allowing that, approving that, not dealing with it in the church. Folks, is is it popular to confront wickedness? Who likes to do that? I I love to confront wickedness. It ain't popular, it ain't fun. You're not going to be lauded. People don't like to be told what to do. It's like, it's like if the church in Pergamum pledging itself to God was remaining true, They're still married to God. They're not really cheating on him, but they're acting like they are. Their behavior looks like they are. 
No, I'm still pledged to you. We're, we're, we're still united. But your words and your actions, the clothes you wear, the perfume that you have on, all of it is telling me it's like you're cheating on me. It's like you've left me, even though you're here. I remember really early on when I was, um, I, before I was dating Emily, when we were in school, um, I think, I think I wanted to be dating her, but we were still friends. You know that moment before you ask them out? Anybody know it? Don't leave me hanging here, right? You know what I'm talking about. Um, and we were at this Halloween dress-up party. And, you know, we're kind of working on growing closer together, right? And um, hadn't yet, you know, got the guts to ask her out. And then this other dude sat down next to her. And it was October, and it was cold. And he was like, hey, you need, you need a jacket? And I'm watching this happen thinking, hey, pal, I'm cold too. I need a jacket. Who are you? Who are you? Sitting next to her. So yeah, Emily and I, we we weren't necessarily together, but you you get the picture. You can see what that would look like. If you start acting like, if you start behaving like you're not together, that's an offense to a jealous God. This is what's happening to the church in Pergamum. They are now facing a threat not just from without. It's actually a threat that's coming. Get this now. It's a threat that's coming from God. Did you hear what he said? If you don't deal with it, if you don't repent, therefore, what is he going to do? I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He, he, he warned us at the beginning, very first verse in, in verse 12, these are the words of him who holds the sharp double-edged sword. So, all right, let me clear up this last part of the imagery before we work on some observations or some conclusions. Um, it ends here in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. All right, hidden manna. What's that? Commentators are just about unified on understanding this. So manna, you guys, I'm, I'm going to try to do this quick because I want to move through it. But you all know what manna is, right? In the desert, how many apple trees are there? Not many. Not carrots or anything, right? But God provides the food. God provided manna. And so what they did is they they took some of it, they bottled it up, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. That's the hidden manna. It represents, remember imagery of the book of Revelation, it represents God's provision. When you're in the desert, what is he going to do for his people? He's going to provide for you. All right? That's what this represents. I believe the other two images here are the same. He says, um, I will also give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who received it. Commentators do not agree on what they think this means. I think I know, though. (laughs) Isn't that arrogant? I think I know what it is. Uh, Here's here's what I think. Uh, Hold your spot here. Turn to Revelation 19. Turn to the... Back of the book, Revelation chapter 19. And I think if you're watching closely, you'll see some parallels here that actually help us clue in on what he's already said about Antipas. All right, Revelation 19, look with me starting in verse 12. Page 1767. I'm sorry. Yeah, good. All right, uh, Revelation 19, verse 12. Speaking here of Jesus, his eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Hey, that's the same thing we just read about the stone in Pergamum, right? The name will be written on the stone that nobody knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood. His name is the word of God and the armies of heaven were following him, riding on what color horses? 
White horses and dressed in fine linen. What was the color of the linen? White and clean. Are, are you seeing the, the white stone and the name that's written on it? Both of those seem to refer to who? You will look like who? And if you, if you didn't figure that out enough, look at the very next line. Verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. How did Jesus introduce himself back in chapter 2, verse 12? I'm the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. All right, flip back. Here, here's what I think it means. I think that the imagery that you have here in verse 17 that talks about manna, that talks about a white stone and a new name, I think what it means is God will provide so that you will look like the sun. That you will look and act like Jesus. For that which is given to Jesus, a name written on it but nobody knows himself, dressed in white, you're going to look like that too. You're going to be given a name. You're going to be provided a name. On a white stone, not that you found or picked up, but one that was given to you. White here looking for purity in the midst of pollution. That white, crystalline, bleached, clean, just like the linen of Jesus in chapter 19. In contrast to the realm of Satan that's surrounding you. Are you guys with me on this idea? I think what it's doing is it's showing God's provision and it's showing that you will look like Jesus. I think that's the promise that we're given. All right, so with that in mind, let's work through some observations and conclusions. Firstly is this, God cares about your faith and your behavior. God cares about your faith and he cares about your behavior. If you look with me back again in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Remain true. It's more than just saying, oh, we're still, we're still married. We're still together. Remaining true is also saying my behavior and my actions, they follow in kind that prove the rule of God. Now, that's easy in a Christian world. Is it not easy? Like you, you come into this place. Is it easy to sing to the Lord? Is it easy to be honest with one another here? I, I hope it is, right? What happens when you leave, though, and go back to where Satan lives? It's a little bit harder there. I want you to know to begin with, this is a primary concern. It's not just God cares about your faith and then you go do you, right? Have it your way, whatever you want. God cares about how you live because you as his child reflect back upon his reputation. He cares about both of these. Secondly, God wants the church to deal with its people who hold worldly influences. Uh, Pastor, that's why we hired you. Nope. God wants the church to deal with the people in the church who hold the worldly influences. Now, you're not going to believe me when I say that, so I'm going to make you look to God's word because you got to believe God's word. Don't just believe me. I want you to hold your spot in Revelation. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. All the way back in your New Testament, past Romans, 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 5. We're going to see that even in Corinth, there are similar problems just like they were in Israel back when Moab was on their border, just like Pergamum is dealing with here in Asia Minor. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, page 1627 in the Pew Bibles. Look at me starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. 
You know, the thing that I hear sometimes uh, as I'm trying to get my, my arms around the culture in which we live, that, that the people who don't want to bend the knee to Jesus, do you know what they say? They say, hey, why are you getting involved in our business? You don't have any right to say and speak into my life. What I do with my body is my business. And the only time that actually matters for any form of state or law or any type of legislation to come in this is when it's not consensual. As long as it's consensual. Is this consensual? Seems to be. And what does Paul say? Sexual immorality. It's, uh, it's not to belong. This is not to be in the church. Verse 2. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present with you, I'm with you in spirit. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. Just as if I were present when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The goal of the discipline here is not to destroy this person, body and soul, but to let the spirit that may be in him be proven true, that he might come back. Uh, look, look with me a little bit further. Jump down a couple more verses to verse 9. Paul writes these words, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Do you, you understand what he's saying here? Are there sexually immoral, immoral people outside of the church? Yes or no? Yes. He's saying, keep in contact with them. Those, are, those people, the ones outside the church, are the ones that you are here to minister to. What are the ones that he's saying don't associate with, though? Not the ones on the outside, but the ones on the inside. Continue with me a little bit further here. Verse 11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Such a man don't even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked man from among you. And so to the answer of anyone who's going to say, who are you to judge? Especially on the outside. Like in our world today, there is a corruption and a pollution that we are sending our kids into every day. And that question of who, who are you to decide what I do with my body, especially in a world that we live in that has rejected the authority of tradition, that has rejected the authority of God's word, that essentially has rejected any clear thought of reason. I follow the whims and the desires of the waves and the wind of my life. You're right. I don't have any right to judge you. But I know the one who will. And so my warning to you is, Fear him, for he will come and fight with those who stand against his rule with the sharp sword of his mouth. I'm going to make sure that my life is not just a spoken faith in God, but it follows an obedience of my behavior, that I live like a Christian would live, because I know God is a judge. And even though I may not be able to judge outside the world, Here's the tough one, guys. We are called to judge within the church. This came up at Bible study. Um, one question was, we shouldn't be, shouldn't be judgmental. And I said, well, we, we should be judgmental. Being judgmental means you're making a judgment call on things. And what the individual meant to say is we shouldn't be condemning. And I agree with that. We shouldn't be condemning. I am not the judge. I am not the one who will condemn. I know the one who will, though. 
And so I will make judgment calls. And any place that I put over my life must come from God's word because you shouldn't care what I think. And I don't really care what you think. What does God's word teach us? That's the element that I must find in obedience to my life. So, you with me on this? God wants the church to deal with its people who hold the worldly influences. Number three, taking a stand begins with repentance. So, we are given the command in verse 16. Uh, I'm not making this up. Turn with me again back to Revelation chapter 2. Verse 16 says, repent therefore. Um, First time I read that, I thought, shouldn't they repent? That was my first thought. Why is Jesus telling uh, like the leaders in the church, even if if I hold to what's right, why are you calling me to repent? And I had to give that some more thought. Uh, Here's the answer that I came to. Do you know why? It's because I've tolerated sin. Um, It's because I knew I should take a stand and I didn't. It's because I have, in effort to allow sin to continue, I've disdained God's reputation. I've been ashamed to take a stand. What, What do you say to somebody who does all those things? They need to what? They need to repent. That's where it begins. Taking a stand begins with repenting, saying, I was wrong. I should have done more. Here's a passage out of James. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, what is that? And when you sin, what do you do? Repent. And so there's the command. If you're going to take a stand, if you are thinking, I'm hearing this today and I feel like I might need to take a stand, that's where it begins for you. It begins on your knees saying, God, forgive me for I have lacked the courage to stand and oppose that which I know your word teaches is wrong because I've been more concerned about my reputation than yours because I, in effort, have become ashamed of you and more fearful of men's opinions. It begins with repentance. Number four, taking a stand can only happen with a dependence on God's provision. And this is why I think when we get to the end of the letter, he says, if you overcome, I'll give you the hidden manna. Manna was God's provision. You can't do this on your own. We read it already, right? Ephesians chapter 6. Because of the corruption in this world, what are we called to do? Put on the There's a word in front of that. Not the armor, the full full armor of God. Your stand is not on your own. How foolish it would be for a guy over in Afghanistan or somewhere, headed out into the battle wearing his swim trunks. What's he taking a stand on? Apparently himself. He doesn't have much to offer at that case. If he's going to take a stand, what does he need to do? He needs to gear up first. And so this is what I want you to understand with this. Taking a stand can only happen when you rely on God's provision. And then you will be able to take a stand. So without taking another 30 minutes to do a study on Ephesians 6, I will leave that for you to read. I know you're not ignorant to the um, armor of God, but um, yeah, we need to pay attention to that. Number five is this. Not taking a stand means, first, the infection will spread. So if you don't take a stand, it doesn't say the pastor, it says the church. If you don't take a stand, things will continue to spread if you don't take a stand. This is what happened in Israel. This is what happened with the Moabite women. Nobody took a stand, and so corruption continued to come in, and it went beyond sexual immorality. It went to now sacrificing to false gods. 
That's where it led to. Because when infections go untreated, when cancer goes untreated, it will continue to pollute the body and degrade that which should be healthy. Sixth and lastly here, not taking a stand means God's judgment. Verse 16, he says, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So if you don't take a stand, this will be the result. They didn't have to fear the world. The danger became God himself for their failure to remain holy apart from the world. If you don't deal with it, who will? If you say now, if you don't deal with it, who's going to deal with it? God's going to deal with it. And so there's our challenge. And this is what I want to leave you with. Um, You and I need to learn to speak the truth in love. In order to understand this, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here, um, I want you to hold your spot again in Revelation. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love. At Bible study, the individual who was talking about not wanting to be ju- judgmental, uh, she said, well, you're meaning I have to tell them that what they're doing is wrong? And I said, yes. And then give them a big hug right after that. Because you don't speak the word of truth in a condemning fashion. You speak truth in a loving fashion. If you saw your own children going astray, you would would do everything you could to correct their path. You would speak and say, what you're doing is wrong. And you'd be doing it out of love for them. The same call is given to the church. I want you to understand this in its context. So go back with me. Ephesians chapter 4. Page 1667 in the Pew Bibles. And I want us to start here in verse 11. Speaking here of Jesus. Everybody with me? Say amen if you're with me. All right, Ephesians 4.11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, which is what I get to be. I'm a pastor and a teacher. Look at the purpose of these people. Verse 12. What's the purpose of the pastor? To prepare God's people for works of service. It doesn't say that the pastor is supposed to do the service. What's the pastor supposed to do? Prepare the people for the works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, if we do, if we do all these things, and this is why God gave Uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the people. If we do that, then what will be the result? Verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. Like Balaam, like the Nicolaitans, like many people in our world today. Instead, verse 15, everybody with me in the context? Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together and every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love, each as each part does its work. The concern, if you turn back now to Revelation, the concern is for the very lampstand, the burning bright beacon of their witness to the world is at at risk. If the church doesn't deal with it, if the church doesn't take a stand, 
It's not the church. Purity must be defined from within. Otherwise, what are you shining out? Everybody understand? I'm about out of words this morning. Give me an amen. You got this? You understand what God's saying in this? You get to decide now what you do with it, though. And so I have for you just a couple of questions. Here's self-reflection. I would love it if you tried to answer these. Number one, who are you surrounding yourself with? What are the voices that regularly influence you? Because bad company corrupts good character. Pergamum had these temples of renown against the worship of God and the rule of God. They said that's where who lived? Who lived in Pergamum? Who had his throne in Pergamum? Satan Satan did. So that's my question. Who do you surround yourself with? Secondly, what are some of the things that people worship today or put before God? I bet you could put a list there. I challenge you to do that. What are some of the things that people put ahead of God? That's called idolatry. It's what Balaam enticed the Israelites to. Thirdly, how is the church facing corruption from the inside out? Do you see this true today anywhere? Is is this happening? And if it is, what are you doing about it? Fourthly, what in your life, or what is it in your life that God is asking you to deal with? So I I wanna take this as it ought to be though from being a church as a whole, I wanna drill it right down to you personally because God's gonna, spirit living within you, is gonna ask you to deal with it too. Remember, we're a family made up of families. And if your family's not willing to deal with it, if you're not willing to deal with it, what will happen to the rest of that body? If we have any corruption from within, we are called, we are tasked, we are commanded. Either you deal with it or God's gonna deal with it. Will you pray with me?